Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Uh, Rick, we have said it before, I will confess, but it feels like this week uh, we have reached something of a turning point, an inflection point, whatever you want to call it, uh, but certainly a defining moment uh, for Donald Trump and uh, not in a good way. June 1st, 2020, uh, the the day uh, that those peaceful protesters were cleared out of uh, the, the the street above Lafayette Park, uh, forcefully, violently, and Donald Trump walked across uh, Lafayette Park uh, to hold a Bible that was carried over in his daughter's purse uh, aloft. Um, uh, you know, literally a half an hour after those protesters uh, were cleared out, uh, seems to be um, a moment we have seen it followed by. Perhaps the most forceful denunciation of a president I have ever seen uh, in real time uh, from a, uh, a cabinet member. Now, there have been cabinet members who have left and criticized their, their, their president, but the, the words that were used by Jim Mattis uh, declaring Donald Trump a, essentially a threat to the Constitution, I think, goes beyond anything we have ever seen from somebody who has served. Uh, in a presidential cabinet uh, about the person that put them in that cabinet. And, and of course, uh, Mattis uh, is not alone. Uh, this, this, this is a dark week in the Trump presidency. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. It's another level of, uh, of critique coming from uh, a general, uh, a cabinet secretary, someone who was a linchpin to the early portions of, uh, of, of the Trump presidency. And I focus uh, this week on a decision the president made uh, and, and is now threatening uh, and, and an image that he sought to create. The decision being to, to use the military um, and to threaten more military involvement in uh, trying to quell the protests, some of which have been um, trending toward violence. Others have been quite peaceful, as you noted. Uh, and, and the image that he sought to project through all of this, this president who is a master of media and a master of the visuals, as you've documented and, and we've covered over the years, decided that the way to react to these protests was what he envisioned as an act of leadership and of defiance uh, wrapped up in religion. Uh, that walk across to the Church of Presidents, which had been uh, defaced with a, a small fire and some graffiti nearby uh, in, in, previous, uh, in previous protests, uh, a church that he uh, rarely attends, um, actually rarely attends any church at all. Uh, and of course, he went there not to pray, but to hold that Bible up. And the confluence of events that led to the the, uh, the clearing of Lafayette Square uh, and the, the use of a hodgepodge of different agencies in, in bringing that result out ahead of the, pre uh, the, the mayor's quarantine or sorry, curfew order uh, and and the president's Defiant march, as followed by cameras, as stage managed by uh, by him and his team, uh, those are indelible moments, and it does uh, it does cut through all the noise, and not in the way that the president uh, would have would have hoped for. In just a moment, moment we're going to talk to our colleague Rachel Scott, who was there in, uh, by the church uh, as the order was given and carried out to forcibly, violently clear out uh, those protesters. Uh, but I, I do want to say something that I think is important here um, about that event. It is not that Donald Trump went to that church 
Um, I, I think that you could have an alternative universe um, where you could imagine one is what I mean, where uh, the area had been had been uh, cordoned off in the morning, uh, so there would be no need uh, to 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 go in there with uh, with flashbang and smoke canisters and uh, pepper balls uh, and 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 batons to clear out protesters, but that it could have been it could have been. Um, you know, cordoned off in the morning before they gathered. And Donald Trump could have made an altogether appropriate visit to St. John's, a powerful symbol in our nation's history, one, of course, you know, church uh, attended by every president since Madison. And he could have uh, gone there. He could have arranged to meet with the rector. Uh, He could have perhaps gone inside and said a prayer, leaving the cameras outside. Um, and, and I think it would have been, uh, altogether, uh, appropriate. It could even have been a, mo- a moment of, 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 great unity. Uh, but that did not happen. Um, by the way, over the course of this week, as a White House reporter, I have not had a chance to ask a question of the president. Uh, this has been in many ways, you know, the most, tra- the most transparent president we've ever seen. He's somebody who, um, who, who, you know, takes questions constantly, but we have seen something different this week. Um, he has, um, he has, he has not responded to people like me or given people like me a chance to, uh, to ask him about any of this. That's not to say, Rick, by the way, that he's not, uh, talking to questioners. Uh, he did do a radio interview, uh, Fox News radio with Brian Kilmeade, uh, where, by the way, he said that, uh, he acknowledged he was taken to the bunker. Um, uh, as those protests started, uh, and um, said that he went to inspect it. Um, anyway, we, we we can get back to that later. But uh, but he also uh, sat down for a um, a question session, a, 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 an audience. Uh, Sean Spicer uh, did did sit down with the president uh, for something that aired on Newsmax. Uh, I I I won't say it was a very hard hitting interview. I'm not even sure I would call it an interview, um, but what we've learned with Donald Trump is sometimes the softest and easiest questions uh, can actually uh, yield the most revealing answers. And I want to play one very short clip from Spicer's audience uh, with his former boss. Since you've been president, have you grown in your faith? Do you pray? Do you pray often? You've talked a lot about religion this week. What does it mean to you? So I think maybe I have, from the standpoint that I see so much that I can do, I've done so much for religion. The Johnson Amendment, getting rid of Mexico City. Nobody thought any of this stuff would happen. Two Supreme Court justices. Uh, First of all, let's just, can you give me a quick fact check on the Johnson Amendment, Rick? Uh, Because I didn't think presidents were able to repeal amendments. Um, the Johnson Amendment is um, actually still in the United States tax code, uh, and okay. uh, it, it, it's been there since the 1950s. Because he he's said. changed, he's changed some of the, the enforcement provisions of it, but it's still there, it's still the okay. law. Okay, uh, and and he's asked if he prays, prays often, his faith has grown, and his answer is to talk about how much he has done for religion, uh, yeah. and, and not to answer the question. It, it made me think, and I'm, I know you remember this, uh, but it made me think of a. Uh, of an interview he had way back during the campaign, 2015, um, with uh, with Bloomberg, where he was asked another another really softball question that I thought. Well, anyway, why don't you go back and play? I'm taking you back in time a little 
that Trevor's got the got the got the tape. Uh, this is a 2015 uh, interview with Bloomberg. Go ahead. You mentioned the Bible. You've been talking about how it's your favorite book, and you said I think last night in Iowa. Some people are surprised that you say that. I'm wondering what one or two of your most favored Bible uh, verses are. Well, and why. I, I wouldn't want to get into it because to me that's very personal. You know, when I talk about the Bible, it's very personal. So I don't want to get into there's verses. No, I don't no want verse, to get into. A, there's no, no I, verse I, that means I a just, lot to you that you think about or cite. The, the Bible means a lot to me, but I don't want to get into specifics. Even to cite a verse that no, you like. No, I don't want to do that. You're I mean, an Old Testament guy or a New Testament guy? Uh, probably equal. I think it's just an incredible, the whole Bible is an incredible. I joke uh, very much so. They always hold up the art of the deal. I say my second favorite book of all time. But uh, I just think the Bible is just something very special. It's just something very special, but he does not want to uh, quote from it. Um, and when he goes in front of St. John's Church, he doesn't open up or refer to a verse, he, he holds it aloft um, in a way that I've never, I don't know if I've ever seen somebody hold a, a Bible the way he held that one. And then when he, when he was asked if it was his Bible, you remember his answer um, on Monday? He said it was a, a Bible. Yeah, it was a, a Bible. Bible. Yeah, and, and this is going to have an interesting, um, an interesting series of implications. We know that evangelical voters are very much in his corner, and um, we know that there's been a significant um, uh uh, groundswell of, of support that the president has uh, brought along his way, regardless of his religion or his personal behavior that's happened. Uh, but we've seen prominent religious leaders come out uh, this just this this week and say uh, that this was an inappropriate use of uh, of, of symbolism um, and that the, the this was appeared to be trampling on First Amendment rights, um, the, the right to peaceably assemble. Uh, to exercise a different First Amendment right in a very strange way. Uh, so wh- whether it, whether this is this is the thing that matters for uh, for voters like that or not, it uh, it is a it's a fascinating slice of the president's psyche that he felt like this was the photo op. To, to well, it was it. it was interesting that it, it, first of all he walked across Lafayette Park with several of his aides, every single one of them white, um, and but there was one white male prominent in his administration that was not with him, and in fact I have not seen with him since Saturday, and that is Vice President Pence. Um, so I I, I want to get uh, we're very honored on the on the on the podcast here to have uh, Rachel Scott who uh, is our colleague and and been reporting on the Trump campaign um, has attended probably more uh, uh, more rallies uh, in this reelection cycle than uh, than than just about anybody and then uh, for the past uh, week and a half uh, she has been out there um, covering the protests and in fact. Uh, Rachel, as we mentioned, uh, you were uh, right there by St. John's Church in front of Lafayette Park uh, when the place was cleared for the president's walk. Rachel, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back on a podcast that I love and listen to. So thank you. So, so Rachel, I, 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 first of all, you've been doing tremendous reporting out there, and I think what, what's been so important about it, um, and um, and and it was. You know, Mary Bruce uh, was out there um, a couple of days before uh, before this all happened as well. Is 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 hearing the voices of those uh, who are protesting because we see the images of you know fires and broken windows and clashes, um, which is which is not what you are. I mean that that is happening. That is real, um, but well. What we are seeing is we are seeing protests in 
every state, every major city in this country, and these are um, almost entirely peaceful uh, and and expressing a real real grievances and 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 and, and, and a spirit that, that I don't think is captured by, by by the images that we see. Yeah, I think that's right, John. And I think, you know, one thing that's important to remember is that every single protester that you have out there, and we're talking about thousands, every single one has a story, right? Um, people come and they're holding up signs. Uh, they're carrying with them their own personal stories about experiencing racial injustice in this country, or maybe they know someone who has. Um This is really personal to a lot of people. And so the killing of George Floyd was just the boiling point in a way. Um, This is much larger than that. This is about other Black lives that have been taken at the hands of police. This is about racial injustice that has continued to persist in this country. And when you watch and you see people moving back, right, the perimeter keeps moving further and further back away from the White House. That's the people's house. This is a White House that was built by slaves. Um, And you're now hearing, you know, more than 50 years after the civil rights era, more than 50 years after many of these young protesters, grandparents marched on Washington, you're hearing these chants of Black Lives Matter. You're hearing these chants calling for, you know, justice. And it's this fight that has continued in this country um, over centuries um, for people of color to be treated the same way as white people in this country. And so I think that is what is fueling a lot of the anger from the president's handling of this. When he takes this walk out of the White House and over to this church, did he stop and read any of the signs? Did he stop and try and talk to any of these protesters to hear their stories? That is where the frustration is coming from. It's it's much larger than just the killing of George Floyd. It's about wanting this president to understand that there is a problem in this country and they're looking to him for a message of unity and they're still waiting for it. And one of the things that, that has struck me uh, walking through and talking to the protesters and, and also um, on on Tuesday, I, I was in the president's motorcade when he took the the drive out to the uh, the shrine for uh, Saint uh, Pope John Paul II, and you saw protesters lining the streets uh, impromptu because um, you know this was this was not an, a visit that had been announced long in advance. Uh, is is seeing both along the the, the motorcade route, um, out on the streets uh, of Washington and on the streets of of cities all across this great country. Uh, is homemade signs. Uh, people have taken, you know, cardboard and written Black Lives Matter. Um, um, and, you know, it, it just seems like it, it is a natural, it is an organic, uh, it, is a, it, is, it, is a, it is a movement. And by the way, I don't think this is going away. Uh, I, I think these protests are, are, are what's your sense on that? I, 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 I think this is going to be, I think that this is going to be happening for a long time. They literally chant, and the day after, and the day after, and the day after. They are not going anywhere um, until they get more of what they're looking for, which is accountability, which is a message of unity from the president. Um, they want to see law, more lawmakers. This is not just about you know the White House and the president as well. Uh, thousands also gathered at the Capitol, sending a message to lawmakers as well. And and I 
And I just want to touch on the diversity that you just said, John, of the crowd of protesters that are out there. This is not just black people that are marching for their lives. These are um, young Latinos. This is white uh, people that are out there as well. This is a lot of young and old people, mainly a lot of young people here in D.C. that I've been seeing. When you were in the motorcade as the president visited that shrine, I was outside with some of the protesters that were protesting peacefully there. And I met a white family, Um, a mom that brought her two little girls out. Her daughter was four years old, and she wrote a sign that said, Mr. President, please stop being mean. And those were her words. She decided to write that sign with her crayons and bring it out, and she held it up as the president's motorcade passed by. So even the youngest Americans are noticing what is happening in our country. and maybe they're not able to fully understand it, but this is really a movement that has that has brought together a lot of different people from different backgrounds that want to just see this country take a, a giant leap in the right direction. And I don't get a sense that they're going to back down anytime soon until they start to see some 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 notable change. I believe you and I both both got emails from the Trump campaign um, uh, uh, after the earlier this week, um, was it, uh, the days are all blending together, was it uh, yesterday or the day before, saying, uh, you know, demanding that the stories be corrected uh, we, because we had said these tear gas had been used to disperse the protesters uh, out in front of Lafayette uh, Park. And the park police came out and said uh, that they used um, uh, smoke canisters and pepper balls. And we obviously know the flashbang that was, that was shot. Um, and they said they did not use tear gas. Um, now, I found this to be a, uh, a, a distinction without a difference. Um, the, the, the tear gas, the pepper, the, the pepper balls uh, have the same effect. Those smoke canisters uh, have the same effect. And in fact, the, the CDC definition of tear gas would encompass both of them. Um, but but you were there. I was in the White House. I could hear the flashbang. Um, I could see the smoke uh, from across Lafayette Park. Tell me what you saw as that crowd was being dispersed. You're an eyewitness. You were there. Yeah, and this is what us reporters, this is our job, right? Our job is to be out there and, and report back to the American people what we are seeing. And so the images that I saw as a reporter on the ground were peaceful protesters, many of them with their hands up saying, don't shoot, and police charging towards them, officials charging towards them. I saw as that smoke was um, erupted, I saw lots of people running and screaming, people dousing out their eyes uh, with water or with milk. Um, It was absolute chaos. And there's this big distinction here between whether tear gas was used or whether it wasn't used. From our perspective, there was no question that it wasn't tear gas. I mean, it was pretty, from us, it was pretty clear that from the way that people were reacting, from folks that were on the ground, their eyes were irritated. They were telling us it was tear gas. We actually backed away a little bit because of how chaotic it did get. Um, We've also been in situations where you know, uh, you know, smoke canisters have been deployed as well. And I did not see the same level of irritation from protesters where they were literally dousing their eyes out with water. 
Um, but I do think this whole discussion on tear gases versus no tear gas also, you know, kind of misses the point of like these were peaceful protesters that were out there and there were violent clashes and it was really hard to watch. It was very chaotic out there. And there was a big question as to why um, such force was used on these peaceful protesters that were gathering just to send this message and, and, and to protest for, for justice and equality and then have this use of force um, um, on, these, on, on these people. I mean, I think that is, the, that is the larger point there for sure. And Rachel, one dynamic that we, we saw um, it, it change in the last couple of days is the uh, the emergence of Joe Biden into the debate in a big way. He gave a speech the first time he's left his home state um, since the COVID crisis began to, to speak on, on race and policing in America. And also former President Obama, uh, who's um, spoken out now a couple of times. And the point that he's made that I wanted to ask you about is that it, it, he, he, he describes it as a false choice between protest and political involvement, that you really you need to do both. And one question I have about the protests that we're seeing now is because they are so disparate, motivated by so many different forces, and because it's so diverse, frankly, uh, do you get the sense that this is a group that is ready to engage in politics in the same way that it's engaging in protests? That there, there's a, the view among the protesters that there is a political solution that needs to be pursued at the state, local, and of course, the national level. I do. I, I get a sense of that. And I think, um, especially in Washington and outside of the White House, this is not just obviously, um, you know, people protesting and, and wanting justice for the killing of George Floyd and for the Black Lives Matter movement. People are also talking about November and they're talking about President Trump. And they want to see more from him. Even some people that have gathered out there that voted for the president are disappointed by how he has handled this. And they believe that there are missed opportunities there. They believe that there are times where he has been a little bit tone deaf, you know, when protesters are gathering outside the White House, when the country is in rage over the killing of an unarmed black man and the president, you know, flew and went to go watch a space, a space launch. Um, there's a disconnect, they feel like, almost like the president is living in an, an, in an alternate universe in, in a lot of ways. Um, so from what I'm hearing from young protesters on the ground, especially people that are 18, 19, 20, 21 years old that are out there every single day trying to get this message across, they're also trying to activate um, this group and, and continue this movement to the point where they are voting. And so for many of them, because we know D.C. had just had a primary as well, many of them said they did vote um, in the primary for the first time, um, because one of the things that they have realized during this whole experience is how important it is to have leaders that they believe will hold people accountable and, and create the change that they want to see in office. And Rachel, before we let you go, I, I'm just curious, your perception of this as a woman of color and a reporter covering this uh, Given your background, given your uh, your personal life experience, how it's been for you to be to be out there, uh, and we know so many police officers are being put in the tough situation. Journalists are being put in a very difficult situation, um, physically uh, as well as emotionally and mentally. Yeah, it's it's really tough. Um, it is exhausting to be a journalist right now, to be a black journalist. 
I was covering the pandemic, uh, talking to Black communities that have disproportionately died and suffered from the coronavirus. For every single statistic that we have and that we air on ABC News, I can tell you a face, I can tell you a story to match it. Uh, I was on ride-alongs with first responders watching Black Black coronavirus patients, you know, suffer, struggling to breathe. Um, I've lost sleep wondering whether or not they survived, whether or not their families got a chance to say goodbye. And then now switching over to covering protests after a Black man was begging for air. Um, my grandmother marched on Washington. <laughs> um, I, I grew up hearing these stories about social justice and the demands. And I'm hearing similar things that my grandmother told me when I was eight or nine years old. I'm, I'm hearing it from young protesters out here as well. I'm also you know, in an interesting position as not only a Black woman, but my dad's LAPD. So when I am on the front of the line of protesters, and I am seeing the passion and the anger, especially from these young Black protesters, and they're screaming at these police officers of color, Black police officers calling them sellouts, um, sometimes using profanity. That also hurts my heart um, because I think that the way to get change in anything, right, is to make our communities, to make our our offices more diverse. Um, diversity is so important. Diversity and inclusion is so important. And my dad was in the riots. Uh, he he came face to face with a lot of protesters. And I know that a lot of minority police officers wanted to join um Join, join the police department because they wanted to be that change. And so it is also hard watching those interactions as well from both sides. They have a job to do. Um, they want to be out there and, and make sure that everything remains peaceful. Um, and so to see those clashes is really tough as well. Well, Rachel, we're, uh, we're lucky to have you out there uh, reporting for ABC News and more importantly, joining us here on the, on the podcast. Uh, so thank you for, uh, thank you for, talking to us and I will, I'm sure, uh, see you out there later today. I will be out there. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate Great. the opportunity. Thank you, Rachel. All right, Rick, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk to uh, another one of our great colleagues, uh, Martha Raditz, about the military component of all of this and Jim Mattis. Uh, before we do, I just wanted to play one one soundbite because we'll, we'll, uh, we'll bring this up with Martha. This was a uh, question that was asked of Kelly McEnany uh, on Wednesday about Esper, uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper, after he uh, said that he did not favor invoking the Insurrection Act, in other words, deploying active duty uh, U.S. troops on American cities, something the president has threatened to do. Uh, anyway, take a listen to this question and answer. Had the secretary ever expressed his views about active duty forces to President Trump before this morning in private? And does the president still have confidence in Secretary Esper? So um, not that I'm aware of in terms of expressing his opinion, and I wouldn't get into the private conversations that went on here in the White House. And with regard to whether the president has confidence, I would say um, if he loses confidence in Secretary Esper, I'm sure you all will be the first to know. But as of right now, he still does? As of right now, Secretary Esper is still Secretary Esper. And uh, should the president lose faith, um, we will all learn about that um, in the future. 
As of right now, Secretary Esper is still Secretary Esper. I don't. I feel like we just I, learned something, actually. <laughs> I don't know if I, ever, I have ever heard a weaker endorsement of a cabinet official uh, by a White House press secretary, and um, and I've heard some weak ones, but uh, but but that that may take the cake. Anyway, Rick, we will be right back with more powerhouse politics. All right, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics, and we are joined now by our great colleague Martha Raditz and Martha. Nobody, uh, none of us knows the military the way you know the military. You, uh, you, you, you know the service members, you know their families, you know the enlisted leaders, you know the, the officers. So I, I just, I want to start by just asking you Jim Mattis's statement, the article that he uh, has written suggesting that Donald Trump is a threat to the Constitution. What is the reaction among the active duty military that? I I think, you know, it's hard to talk for everybody, but the reaction that I have gotten from from certainly people I know and people I respect, uh, a lot of them said, what took him so long? I think it was well known that Jim Mattis had some serious issues with Donald Trump. And I think there was a bit of cheering going on in the background. There's also, as, as you know, John, as you know, Rick, it's a very complicated issue. The The military does not want to be politicized. That is the purest institution away from politics. And that's so important to people like Jim Mattis. It's why he hasn't said anything up until now. So it was extraordinary in that sense, remarkable statements. And, and yet I, I think when people really look at it, they're not quite as surprised as you might imagine. And and they also still are worried about how the public will view this. Does the public think we're now political? Does the does the public now think this is some sort of military coup? So so they really there are some people who still feel we just can't as a massive group go out there and say things about Donald Trump. It, it's also, you know, I, I think you pointed out, John, it's, it's, it, 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 it's remarkable that it's a former cabinet member who's saying such extraordinary things about a sitting president. And yet there's been no president like Donald Trump. Uh, provocative, and, and I think they just, Jim Mattis thought he had no choice. You know, I talked to him right after this essay. I called him immediately. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of had that Jim Mass, Mattis chuckle. And then he said, I said, why did you do this? And he said, enough is enough. Um, because I've certainly talked to him over the years. And we all know he, he resigned, although President Trump now saying he was fired. He resigned over the Syria policy and... And leaving the Kurds behind in in Turkey, that was it for him. But even then, he left without saying anything personal about Donald Trump. He didn't say anything personal uh, in his book that people thought perhaps he'll say something in his book about what really happened. When I think about how, how the line Jim Mattis never wanted to cross, he never wanted to be political when he worked as Secretary of Defense for Donald Trump. I remember that cabinet meeting, him in the White House, and Donald Trump went around the table asking 
cabinet members and aides. It, it, it was basically why we love you, Donald Trump. And when they came to Jim Mattis, who kind of had his head down, all he said was, it's an honor to represent our troops. It's an honor to serve the nation. It's an honor. I mean, at all times, Jim Mattis remembered the oath that he swore to. And that oath is to the Constitution. And he will tell you whenever you ask him that that is what he swore his oath to, the Constitution, the people, not the president. Right, so let's let's get to the current Secretary of Defense, uh, who was there with the president in the Rose Garden when the president uh, said that if governors don't do what needs to be don't don't do what needs to be done, he will send active duty military uh, to America cities to impose order. And then he was with the president, of course, as he walked across Lafayette Park, uh, imposed um, in front of St. John's Church. Uh, there have been some differing explanations coming from Esper as to what exactly happened there. But I think the most important thing that happened in the wake of that was Esper yesterday at the Pentagon, and Trevor's got the sound we will play, uh, saying that he opposed the idea of using active duty forces uh, to, to deal with this crisis. The option to use active duty forces in a law enforcement role should only be used as a matter of last resort and only in the most urgent and dire of situations. We are not in one of those situations now. I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act. So, Martha, what I can tell you is that that uh, was not received well at the White House. Um, I, uh, the, the president um, uh, basically exploded uh, when, when, when he heard that. Uh, but tell me, what brought it about? Why did Esper... Why did Esper feel a need to go out and have that press conference and say what he said? I think Esper, remember, a, a former soldier himself has been inundated with criticism from people he knows and respects about that walk over to St. John's, about why he did it, why he stood next to the president for what was clearly a photo opportunity after law enforcement and National Guard. National Guard did not move forward from the position they were in, in Lafayette Square, but they were there. And to walk over there and and get pummeled. There was also a story in the New York Times that, that Esper had in fact supported uh, the idea of invoking the Insurrection Act. Uh, whether that is true or not, I do not know. But he was getting all kinds of blowback about the possibility of using active duty troops. He had also said, uh, made that statement that set uh, other military people's hair on fire, uh, which was, uh, we need to dominate the battle space. And so uh, at my urging, I agree, we need to dominate the battle space. Uh, you have deep resources in the Guard. I stand ready. The chairman stands ready. The head of the National Guard stands ready to fully support you in terms of helping mobilize the Guard and doing what they need to do. I think the sooner that you mass and dominate the battle space, the quicker uh, this dissipates and, uh, and we can get back to uh, uh, the right normal. He said that in that, in that call with governors. His 
excuse for that was, hey, I, I was a soldier. I went to West Point. I'm, I'm, I'm in the Army. It's just the way we talk. Well, he's been out of the Army for quite a while. It is not the way you talk if you're talking about National Guard uh, or, or anybody. The, the American streets are not a battle space. And that puts in people's heads. That puts in, in, in their heads, what are the rules of force here? What are the rules of engagement with the guard? It's more rules of force. And if they've heard the Secretary of Defense say things like that and, and the statements that President Trump has made. So I think when Esper said that, he he was either backtracking uh, from something he had originally said. But I think he was trying to show, look, I, I really know what I'm doing. I'm not going to send in uh, American troops and in into what I call the battle space. That wasn't what I meant. That's just the way I talk. I think he was trying to trying to please his critics and trying to, in the days before that, please the president. And you end up pleasing no one. Martha, so much of this, I feel like, is complicated from the military's perspective because, uh, as as Mattis points out, you take an oath to uphold the Constitution, but you're also you're also part of a chain of command. And if you're serving under President Trump, uh, just like you would under any other president, he gives an order. The inclination, the training, everything in your soul says you carry it out. Is uh, do, do you do we approach a point where it's possible, plausible that? An order by the president is ignored by the by, by generals, by the secretary of defense, even that, that you see a presidential order that is that is outright defied. Or are we not there yet? I, I, I don't think we're there yet. I mean, or, an order that they would not carry out certainly, hopefully would be an illegal order. I think Esper, I mean, our military can stand up and say that is illegal what you're doing. I'm not going to do that. Uh, and and you know, for an example like that, if if um, you know the guard is ordered to go over there and shoot that guy running into the businesses, I, I would hope that the guard would say, "I'm I'm not doing that. I'm not allowed to do that." Um, that's the order they couldn't carry out. But I think with with someone like Esper, he's absolutely in the chain of command, and that and that is why that moment and coming right out of that press conference and and saying that about the Insurrection Act. I think he wanted to show that, hey, I'm advising the president. This is the advice I'm giving him. Uh, in many ways, you can't blame Trump for being mad at that, that he is going to publicly say something, uh, advice that he would give the president uh, in a public press conference. But uh, there's certainly people who have stood up to President Trump. But John, you know better than every, anybody that that doesn't often work and they often disappear. Well, well, and, and if I can just just add, you know, I mean, the interesting thing about that is so Esper says what he says about opposing the Insurrection Act when Kelly McEnany came out in that White House press conference that we played a little bit before the break. Uh, she very pointedly twice and emphatically said the president has the sole authority to invoke the Insurrection Act. In other words, it doesn't matter a damn what Esper thinks. It is the president's decision. He's not doing it yet. He doesn't think it's necessary yet. But he has the power to do so, regardless of what the defense secretary thinks, and it is an option that he holds as a as, as a possible course of action. And and absolutely to that. But again, it, it is that public um, uh, pummeling, in a way, of of what the, what he already knew the president was thinking about, and and yep. just getting himself on the record. 
And Martha, looking at, looking at some of the, the broader points that General Mattis made in this uh, in this extraordinary statement, he talked about the president, uh, his natural inclination being to 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 divide rather than unite. And I'm just I'm wondering how you read that as someone who knows the military so well. Is there something core to the American ethos of uh, in the military branches in the service? That says that that is a priority. That 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 there's that there's a broader purpose here than just dominating battle spaces, say, winning missions. That there's something bigger at stake. I'm glad you asked me that. At the core, at the core of what the military is, they're a team. They depend on each other. So that resonates with the military. That unifying moment, not only for them as a team as in in each service, they go to fight together. They know they can take the weakest member of the team and pull that member up. They know without that member of the team, they can't accomplish anything. They have to work together. They have to, their lives depend on it. So I think in so many ways, what Jim Mattis was, was doing was this old Marine knowing that as a team, you will not win unless you do it together. And as a country, you will not succeed unless you do it together. All right, Martha, on that note, thank you for joining us. Uh, certainly a conversation we will, be, we will continue to have in the days ahead. I mean, one of the things that I think about here is uh, the, the, the question that, that Rick raised about chain of command. And if it came to the point where the president decided to invoke uh, the Insurrection Act and, uh, you know, Esper continued to oppose it. The big question, of course, is the big question as always, would he resign? And um, we'll see where we go. But uh, but interesting days and ominous days ahead. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you, Martha. You, Martha. Uh-huh. So, so, Rick, I, just, just to, to close out, I, I, there's a something I mentioned um, in front row at the Trump show, uh, which I think is I, I've been thinking about a lot over the last uh, the last twelve hours. Um, Mattis, there, there was a debate, and I, I spent a chapter on this. Uh, there, there was a debate over how to handle what his advisors saw as some of what the president's advisors saw as some of his most destructive impulses. Uh, do you do as you suggested? Uh, do, do you do you ignore an order? Um, do you simply defy what the president wants? Uh, do you challenge him to his to his face? Um, and do you do you resign in, in, in protest? And there there were different approaches to this. And Mattis and John Kelly as chief of staff, Rex Tillerson for his short period as as secretary of state, uh, seemed to have the view of you know you basically thwart the self-destructive impulses of the president, um, enable the constructive ones, thwart the, uh, the self-destructive ones. H.R. McMaster, who was the uh, national security advisor, uh, had, had an opposite view, which was nobody elected any of these guys. They elected the president. And if you don't like what he's doing, challenge him to his face. If you really don't like what he's doing, you resign. But you don't thwart an order. But I, I bring this up because of something John Kelly told me, and he told me more than once while he was chief of staff. And it was, he told me off the record, but as you know, in the, in the writing of, of my book, um, he gave me the permission to 
tell the world what he had told me at the time off the record. And it was something he said uh, in, in a very grave way. Um, and very, you know, he's a four-star retired Marine general. He could be a very serious guy. And this was a very serious statement. He told me every morning when I wake up, I should be thankful that Jim Mattis is the Secretary of Defense. And his tone in which he said this, and again, more than once, the implication was clear that Jim Mattis is there basically thwarting the destructive impulses of his boss, the President of the United States. Now, obviously, Jim Mattis is no longer there. John Kelly's no longer there. They've both been gone for a while. Um, and I, I, I don't know who there in this White House right now are in the cabinet uh, either stands up and tells the president they disagree uh, or who quietly tries to undermine him. I, I, I don't get a sense there's much of either of that anymore. And I think that it, that is a pivotal question as we talk about what might be a pivot point in this presidency, the events of this week uh, that, have, that have changed so much around the the governing structures, the guardrails that might be in place around this president, the president's impulses five months before an election. And you know, the fallout, it would be fascinating to see how the Mattis's comments continue to reverberate because we've seen formers come out before. There's a long tradition in Washington uh, that's been pronounced under the Trump presidency of people coming out uh, and saying things publicly they wouldn't say when they were in office. And, you know, they're formers, so they their, their words fade away. Mattis may be different. Mattis is someone that had the near universal respect of the military establishment of so many elected leaders. We saw just this afternoon Senator Lisa Murkowski come out and say that there were a lot of things that Mattis said that uh, that, that needed to be said. Uh, but on the flip side, Senator Lindsey Graham saying he didn't understand the full political context. Uh, so is this different? Is this a time that changes things? I feel like we've said it before, John, and, and have been proven wrong that this president continues to barrel ahead. This does seem like a, a major moment, though, where you have the president against uh, against the military of the United States, against some of the more reasoned and responsible voices in, in, in leadership. Um, I feel like all of that combines at this very combustible moment. A defining moment of the Trump presidency, I believe. Uh, that is all the time we have for powerhouse politics. Uh, for Rick Klein and myself and our tremendous team, including the, uh, the unstoppable Trevor Hastings and Avery Miller, uh, thank you for listening. We will be back next week.